0: All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Medical Indemnity Protection Society, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. Hi everybody. Welcome to the timeout. My name's Ganesh, and I'm joined today by Dr. Pecky De Silva, vascular and endovascular surgeon based in Sydney. She's also the chair of Younger Fellows and the deputy chair of the Women in Surgery Committee at RACS. As a proud mother of one, with a wealth of stories to share with us today. Welcome to the show, Pecky, and thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So let's start with your specialty. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do?
1: So I'm a vascular surgeon, which means that we operate on all the blood vessels uh, in the body, except for the head and the heart. Um, And the really great thing about vascular is that we get to do both open and endovascular treatments. And especially in Sydney, where I am, We tend to do quite a lot endovascularly, which is with balloons and wires and things, minimal access surgery. The scene basically changes. The technology is changing so much, and there's so much to learn and so much to do. So it's a really exciting field to be in. Things that I do a lot of obviously, being a woman, I get a lot of varicose vein patients, uh, Mm -hmm. but I do also have, I run the high risk uh, diabetic clinic at my hospital. So I've got an interest in diabetic foot. Um, obviously, we also do things like aneurysms um, and then just weird things that sort of pop up, vasculitis, people with weird diseases. Um, yeah. And obviously, lots of people with swollen legs find their way to my to my rooms.
0: Yeah. We, actually, we can't wait to talk about all of this a bit later today, but thanks for that overview. Um, for now, we'll move to some warm-up questions to get us going. Um, the first of which is, do you prefer dogs or cats?
1: Oh, definitely dogs.
0: Yeah. Do you have any dogs of your own at the moment?
1: I do. I have a two and a half year old chocolate brown Labrador. Oh, who yeah. I have unfortunately given him a taste for coffee and he will not let me drink my morning coffee in peace. He comes yeah. up, he tries to jump onto my lap to get. To my coffee which is not fun when he's 45 kilos yeah. and um and so yes, yeah, so he literally sits by my side until i finish and i have to leave a little bit at the bottom of the cup so that he can lick that
0: yeah well dogs and coffee i have to say i haven't thought about that earlier but you might be onto something <laughs> uh, maybe they're just full of energy afterwards
1: he's totally addicted it's terrible I <laughs>
0: yeah um a favorite hobby at the moment
1: um into Lego, I'm um, into jigsaws at the moment. This is also yeah. COVID, COVID-induced uh, lockdown activities. Those would probably be the, the two things. And reading. I do read a lot. Yeah. But don't ask me what I read because it's all trash. I love something that I can just quickly get into, though I do like science, uh, sort of fantasy. Yeah. Um, so things like Raymond Feast and uh, things of that that sort of ilk.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think Um, we've found that there's a mix of people, those who do like keep, you know, like being immersed in the world of medicine, so we'll read texts about that. Others who just want to get away, you know, get lost in a murder mystery or something for a while and then come back to the real world. So any choice is welcome here. So you've mentioned those books. Do you listen to anything as well at the moment that you quite enjoy, be it music or podcasts?
1: You know, I'm I'm really not I like music, but I'm really not into music to my yeah. husband's dismay because my husband's a real audiophile <laughs> and he will listen to something and he'll get so excited and he'll be like, can you hear the difference? And I'm like, no, no, I can't. Sounds the yeah. same. So, you know, he'll have music playing a lot in the house and I'm I'm not really into sort of things. No. Um, podcasts, when I go for walks, occasionally I'll listen to stuff. Um Mostly, I like to listen to interviews and and listen to people talk. I think probably the one of the things that I listened to a while ago was um, the partner of Oliver Sacks. You know, the man who wrote yeah, yeah. And he was so he was so Oliver Sacks was gay, and his partner wrote this book, and he was doing interviews, and I think it was Richard Moorcraft who interviewed him, and it was this amazingly fantastic. Uh, conversation um and I hate walking usually and I actually walked a lot longer just so I could finish listening to the whole interview yeah Um, so yeah so that's that's something if I if I have time I'll listen to podcasts yeah yeah
0: well that's a good one to add to to the list from Oliver Sack so we might check it out as well all right now tell me what comes to your mind in three words or less when I mention the following destinations University of New South Wales
1: oh uh Wallace Worth building
0: yeah okay um, any fond memories from over there
1: oh look I had a great time at university it was a so Wallace Worth is the medical building I made some really great friends at university uh, in fact um obviously I'm in Sydney so I'm in lockdown and I caught up with some of my uni friends just the other day and uh we were having zoom drinkies and we were sort of reminiscing about a few things that happened when we were medical students and, and junior yeah. doctors. Um, so, yeah, university days were fantastic. I really enjoyed them. I, um, so I actually didn't get straight into medicine and yeah. I did a Bachelor of Commerce majoring in hospitality management and marketing. So I then transferred into medicine and when I transferred in, they made a mistake and they put me into two different tutorial groups and so when I went and said to them, well, look, you know, you've put me into a groups, so they said, well, you choose whichever tutorials you want to attend. And yeah. so I was the first, I think, part-time medical student because what I did was I got all my tutorials onto sort of two or three days, which meant that I only had to go to university three days a week. So it was four days, but it meant that I had then two days off. So except yeah. for one biology lecture, which I used to skip. But we won't. Yeah.
0: All right. Next destination, Edinburgh.
1: I was going to say edinburgh castle yeah um or carlton hill they, but they're both oh they're both two words i don't know uh, yeah,
0: that's okay i mean there's a reason why we mentioned edinburgh which we'll get to a bit later as part of your training journey um, and but before we do there's a last destination that we want to get to your thoughts on singapore
1: oh food, uh, food. Yes.
0: fantastic <laughs> So uh, yeah yeah Now, in terms of another warm-up question, and I think you might enjoy this one, which historical figure would you love to sit down and have a chat with and why?
1: I'd really like to know who Jack the Ripper is.
0: Wow. Yeah, fantastic choice. So,
1: you know, as long as it was kind of like one of those Hannibal Lecter, like Silence the Lambs, where he's behind like a glass cage and can't actually kill me, I think that would be really interesting to actually find out who Jack the Ripper was.
0: Yeah there are so many rumors and conspiracies now about you know who he or she might have been.
1: Right. So yeah so that is one of the things that I do like to do is I do like to watch TV so criminal minds is probably one of my favorites and yeah reading about serial killers and things that's one of my other things that I enjoy doing so yeah, yeah. Well, so, that yeah, there was, was that would be good.
2: Yeah okay but there
1: is a rumor wasn't it that he that you know one of the possibilities was that he was actually a doctor
0: Mm, yeah, I've heard that rumor as well. Mm. Now, Pecky, what does a typical day in your life look like?
1: You know, it's, it's hard because I have what I think is a really great work-life balance. Yeah. Um, so I have mostly every Monday off. I have every second Tuesday off and sort of sometimes a very occasional Friday off. So every Wednesday I'm in rooms, and so that's a full day of consulting, and then every alternate Thursday I operate at the public or I do procedures in my rooms. Um, And then on Fridays it's the opposite, so I operate at the private every alternate Friday or do rooms or procedures, or if if I have nothing booked in, I'll have a Friday off. Um, So a really typical day for me. Um, say if it's my, my rooms day is getting up and yelling at my daughter to get ready for school um, and um, then getting her into the car I'm always late so her poor report is, it's always says that she's late and it's usually a combination of her and me um, so I drop her off to school and then I go to my office and I'll do um, consulting from nine till five and then I'll usually finish and do paperwork. And if I have patients in the private, I'll go and do an evening round and then come home. So, yeah, so it really depends what I'm doing for the day. Um, yeah. and I think that's one of the good things about surgery is that it is a combination of rooms and operating um, and doing procedures. I think most students, when you go around, And spend time in hospital. And that's why it's really important to go and spend time in hospital when you're a medical student because you really do get to get a feel of what interests you and what doesn't interest you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think very early in my clinical career, literally in day one, when I was doing renal medicine as a medical student and after we did the world's longest ward round, (laughs) looking at sick patients and trying to titrate you know, LASIKs and do all sorts of things and examine them from head to toe. And I remember standing there at the end of the day with my fellow medical student, who's a really good friend of mine, and the two of us just going, this is not us. You never do this for a living. And yeah, so renal medicine very, very quickly told me that I did not wish to be a physician. So, and I think that's one of the things, you know, you get to go to theatre. As a medical student, I spent so much time in theatre and I loved that environment, and I mean I still do. My operating de- operating days are such a fun day for me. Yeah. I work with the same at the private. I work with the same team. I have um, my anesthetist um, was actually a resident when I was an intern. Um, yeah. So I known him um, for ages, so it's really nice. And the nurses are the same nurses, so you get this real camaraderie, um, and it's a lovely atmosphere to be in Um, and because it is a really scary place for patients when you have a team Mm -hmm. that work really well um, and we're all very happy and nice and I've had patients that have come to me and said, you know, it's really weird but I had such a great time in (laughs) theatre with your team and I do quite a few procedures under local anaesthetic and so, you know, it's really important to to have a really calm collegiate environment um, Mm. for the patients as well.
0: Yeah, I love that refreshing outlook on, you know, what the intense surgery environment should be like. Fantastic. And also hearing that you also have, you know, the days off as a surgeon, which um, many of us as medical students think, oh, no, you know, you you lose all sense of your life afterwards. So very good to hear that, Peggy.
1: It's this idea that, you know, some people do like to work all the time and want to work five days away. But uh, my accountant who works with um, lots of doctors said that you know the doctors who are the happiest are the ones who only work four days a week and I think that's really important with for all of us to consider is you know what do you want your life to be like I think that old-fashioned idea that all you ever did was work has really Mm -hmm. moved we've all moved away from that Um, you know when I was a trainee (laughs) my uh, one of my consultants told me that when he, one of his children was born he was at work operating yeah he said he sent his wife flowers you know it's kind of like I don't know I think if your baby's being born maybe you want to be in hospital and and see that happen um yeah. obviously it's a bit different if you're a woman because you tend to be in the hospital <laughs> a family, but you know it's one of those things about the fact that and one of the things I think about is when you die, you know, who's going to be by your grave? It's, it's not going to be, um, you know, all the patients you've operated on and, you know, it's going to be your family and your children, your grandchildren. So yeah. that's kind of a really important part of your life that you have to invest in um, yeah. just as much as your career
0: yeah absolutely and look people have different priorities and what matter to them um but we're certainly glad to hear that you know you're aligning with the most of us who we want to have something else apart from Mm -hmm. surgery so let's get let's start to get to know um pecky and her whole journey tell us about your childhood where were you born and where did you grow up
1: uh so i was born in sri lanka and (laughs) my father actually um left the day I was born to go to Singapore for a scholarship mm-hmm. um, and so family legend has it I was born as his plane was landing mm-hmm. um, and he then went to Africa to Kenya to work and so my mum who you know when I think back on this and I think how amazing it was my mother who'd never been on a plane before mm. packed up four children packed up a house and went to Africa um so for a first plane trip and in those days they had to fly from colombo to um to bombay and yeah. in Bombay or Mom- mumbai as it is now the there was a delay and so she had to spend 24 hours in transit at the airport yeah uh, so i'm the youngest so i was eight months old and then i have two brothers who were absolute demons so <laughs> they were six and eight and apparently running around the airport my poor mum grabbing me in one hand running after the boys Mm -hmm. and then my sister who was 13 and from all accounts really cranky about being made to leave all her friends and move to a new country so Mm -hmm. um I don't think it was a really easy trip for mum so then we went to Nairobi and um we were there till I was nine so Mm -hmm. it was a really great childhood i don't remember a lot yeah but we used to go on safaris and yeah. so I, have, I have some really great memories of that and in fact in my office i have a picture from Amboseli national park with giraffes and zebras. and so when patients come in and they go oh that's really lovely and i always say "Oh, that's you know when i grew up that's where my dad used to take us and and so it's mm-hmm. quite a nice conversation piece when you start talking with patients as well
0: yeah For me, I do recall a Masai Mara. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Now, back then, so it appears you you were there until you were around nine years old. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, as you kept growing and as a child and teenager, um, do you you think there was any indication back then that you'd get into medicine or surgery?
1: So from the age of five, whenever anyone said to me, what are you going to do when you grow up? I would say, I'm going to be a doctor. So it was... You know, there was never any doubt in my mind that I was going to be a doctor. Um, And then I got into high school, and I so we came to Australia when I was nine. Obviously, schooling here, and then in high school, I got into a selective high school. So I went to um, James Ruse. So people that live live in Sydney, yeah, uh, everyone knows James Ruse. And, again, I loved high school and it was really uh, wonderful. I did lots of extracurricular things. So I did debating, I played hockey and mock trial and uh, drama and I also did the sets for the musicals, all kinds of things. Um, And I also loved watching television. My parents used to always say that I was studying three-unit television. (laughs) So I had the amazing ability that if you asked me, uh, if you tell me a time and a channel, I could tell you what TV show would be on at that time. Yeah. Um, so if only I'd remembered my maps the same way, but anyway. Um, so I just assumed that I'd get into medicine, but I didn't really work that hard. Yeah. Um, and so when um, the time came and my ATAR came out, or my TER in those days, I actually mm-hmm. didn't get enough to get into medicine. Right. Um, but I had kind of figured out at that time that with my assessment marks and things that I may not quite get into medicine. So I had worked on my plan B, which was I took out the careers book and I basically flipped through it and I decided, you know, if I don't get into medicine, what would I be able to do for the rest of my life yeah. that would make me happy? And you probably don't remember this show because you're probably too young, mm-hmm. but there used to be this show called Hotel, yeah. And um, it starred Connie Selica, who was, again, you guys won't remember who that is. <laughs> um, and it was basically based in this five-star hotel. And I used to watch this and I, just, and I kind of thought to myself, you know, I think I could do, you know, hotel management. I think that would be a kind of I, traveling yeah. the world, running these incredible hotels. And so I applied for this course. that was just starting at New South Wales. And it was majoring in hospitality management and marketing. And I actually got in. And, um, mm-hmm. and so I started first year at uni doing that. Yeah. And, of course, you know, if anyone who is Indian or Sri Lankan, they will uh, understand this when part of that degree you had to do some work experience. And yeah. so obviously you have to apply. And I remember applying for things like, you know, being a chambermaid or uh, you know working at a front desk my front desk was really hard to get and I remember my mother saying to me uh, oh picture this is so wonderful paying all this money for you to go to university to work as a maid so um, I think that <laughs> I kind of thought about that and I thought yeah you're right I really don't want to clean other people's toilets yeah. um, and so I was really lucky we did part of that degree I did accounting and economics, which I really loved actually. Um, and I ended up getting a distinction average in all my subjects. So I transferred yeah. into medicine. And so yeah. the next year I, I studied medicine. So people always say hospitality management too. And I go, oh yeah, yeah, you know, hospitals, hospitality. Yeah. You know, makes sense. Um but it was great because it's part of my first you know, that first year, one of the part of hospital management was we had to go out and do a bar course and learn how to make cocktails. So, yeah, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. that was very handy in, in first year med. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And it seems, um, even though you were pursuing that line of um, hotel management, that spark for medicine never really left you.
1: Oh, no, no. I, you know, even, um, That first year in medicine, I mean, the reason I got um, I went and saw because, you know, when you start university, you know, you all know they have careers counsellors and stuff. Yeah. I went and spoke to a careers counsellor and she was like, wow, you know, you really, you know, it looks like you really would like to do medicine. I was like, yeah, I really would. And so um, it was great because they actually said, you know, if you want to transfer, this is what you need to do. Mm, Okay. and you know, it meant that I could then go right. I just had to get a distinction average, uh, yeah. and transfer in. So, and I guess that's my the theme of my life is that if one door slams in your face, there's always other things that you can do to get there. So, yeah. um, and but doing that year was really great because it really made me know that I wanted to do medicine. And uh, you know, there's a there were a few people in my year. I'm sure. You, you know all of you probably know somebody that's doing medicine that probably would have been better off doing something else mm. um you know because medicine is it is a really difficult profession if you don't like people and if you don't want to spend time with people yeah and there are certain qualities i think that you need to sort of recognize in yourself um, and it can be a really um not a great um career if if you know, you don't genuinely love it is what I think, you know, because I think like all things, there's bad things to medicine, but if you don't genuinely love it, then the bad things will kind of weigh on you.
0: Yeah, you'll tend to focus on that a lot now. So you're absolutely right, the people who might not be suited for it once they're in it, also the people who might not be in medicine but still think, you know what, it didn't work out the way I wanted, but it can still work out in my Mm -hmm. own way. Yeah. Yeah. So in any case, this brings us to um, studying medicine at University of New South Wales, hence the first destination there at the start. Um, What are some of the highlights you remember from those days, perhaps the cocktail making?
1: (laughs) Oh, look, we had, uh, it was great. I made lots of friends, but I was also really into um, getting involved. So I was president of the Medical Society in my fourth year. Um, I got involved with AMSA
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and, um, and that's, you know, quite a few people who are now in really prominent leadership positions in different areas, they were all involved with AMSA. Um, so if it's something that interests you as a student, um, then it's something to look at. And I have to say compared with when I went to medical school, it's fantastic to see all of these surgical societies and so many different things that uh, medical students are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, sometimes I wonder whether it's because there is a, you know, a a postgraduate component and a little bit older and wiser and they come in um, with more ideas because I, I, I always sort of think that that extra year before I got into medicine made a difference to my, maturity and that you know once you get as you get older you know you get certain ideas and things of how you want the world to be um and it's really great to see um you know even this podcast for instance just having those um ideas and bringing them out and and and, um doing them it's fantastic so I think that's great so and that was what you know I I got involved with Medsoc and AMSA and um so yeah so those were the things that I did during medical school
0: right. time. And at that time, um, you know, what was driving you? Did you have any goals or ambitions to accomplish in medicine?
1: So, when I was a student, initially, I really, when I first became a doctor, I really wanted to be a pediatrician. Hmm. Um, and then, as I decided I didn't want to be a physician after I did my renal term, I thought, well, <laughs> oh, maybe pediatric surgery. And then I did pediatrics. And then I discovered parents. And I realized very quickly that um, paediatrics was not for me. Um, I loved kids, but, um, you know, working with lots of very overly anxious parents and now being a parent myself, I'm totally glad that I didn't do paediatrics. So I knew by the time medical school finished, I definitely knew that I wanted to do surgery. Um, I did my elective in trauma surgery. Um, I was lucky enough to go to South Africa and did six weeks in uh, Johannesburg. Yep. And so that was really interesting. So I got to see lots of gunshots and all kinds of trauma that um, you'd probably need to be around a uh, emergency department for a couple of years in Australia before you'd see everything that I saw in six weeks. Um, but that was really great because again, that helped me know that I really didn't want to do trauma surgery. So I think one of the things about medicine is, as students is, is to spend time in different specialties and work out what it is that you like and don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, um, at New South Wales University, we got to do six weeks of, of an elective of whatever we wanted to, in a way, we could choose something in, in the clinical school I was in. So I did uh, six weeks of cardiothoracics and yes, I learned that I really didn't really want to do cardiothoracics. I thought it was really boring, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I apologize to all my cardiothoracic c- colleagues, um, but, you know, it all just seemed to be the same operation, you know, bypass, 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 <laughs> bowel replacement, bypass, bypass, <laughs> bypass. So, you know, I just thought, oh, you know, I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to be doing different things and, and not always doing the same operation all the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so by the time I finished medical school, I knew that I wanted to do surgery, but it was just thinking, and at that, that stage really, because you get exposed to general surgery the most, I thought that's what I wanted to do is to become a general surgeon.
0: Yeah, so that's where we started off um, after your medical school days. Um, but while while being here, one last thought I wanted to hear from you about was... In interacting with medical students these days, mm-hmm. um, you know, do you think that we should we are doing some things well, or are there some other things you feel we can be doing more of?
1: You know, I think when you're a student, it is such a golden opportunity to get to go and do things. And certainly for me, I spent so much time in theater. I was I was in theater as much as I could be. Um and I got to go to nearly every subspecialty theatre. You know, I went to ENT and watched all kinds of ENT operations, decided that was not for me. I did not like to stick things up people's noses. So um, seeing a polyp removed, that was just like, oh, that was disgusting. So I was like, yep, I'm out of there. Um, I went to orthopedics. I really was not a fan of orthopedics, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was great. I mean, you know, I hung up. I hung out enough at orthopedics that i was able to do close reductions and stuff as a medical student um, and you know lots of suturing i'd offer to close every wound that i could I know. Um, you know i remember when i was doing my cardiothoracic term as a medical student i was assisting one of the surgeons when he was doing a thoracotomy and um i mean you know i am quite old so you have to remember this is quite a while ago probably wouldn't happen so much now but you know we finished operating and he like finished the part that he's done and he just unscrubbed and said, just close up. Yeah. And he left theaters. And I had to like go, and I had to send one of the nurses after to him to say, can you just remind him that I'm the medical student? Yeah. <laughs> come back because I don't know how to close a rib. Like, what do you want me to do with the ribs? And so he came yeah. out. he didn't scrub in, he just stood there and instructed me on how to close this wound. And um but, you know, for me to get to that stage, I'd already, as a fourth-year medical student and even a fifth-year medical student, I'd spent so much time in theatre that I was comfortable closing layers and closing skin and doing all of that. So, um, so yeah, it was just that experience. I mean, it's harder these days because there's so many people in theatre. We have mm. a lot more. And it depends where you are as well. I was lucky I was in a... Um, at that stage, I was, I was a medical student at Liverpool Hospital and it wasn't as well staffed as it probably is now. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, sometimes it was all hands on deck. So, I think it was just that experience. And I think, um, you know, if you show that you're keen, um, I did my internship at the same hospital. So, a lot of the surgeons that I worked with as medical student, as a medical student, all ended up being my referees to get onto surgery. Yeah. Um, and they all, you know, I turned up on my first day, and because i have been a medical student there, everyone knew my name. Yeah. Um, they It made life a lot easier from that point of view.
0: Yeah, those are good messages. One, making the most of the opportunities you have as a medical student, mm-hmm. and the second aspect of the relationships you can start to cultivate, you know, as you grow up. Because you know, as a medical student, you'll probably be working with some of the residents, registrars, or even consultants you encounter. Absolutely.
1: and I think that's really important. Um, you know, it, it is those relationships. So, as a medical student, you know, when you go to theatre, introduce yourself. Don't be scared. Don't be shy. You know, walk up to the surgeon and, and say, you know, excuse me, my name is, you know, Joe Blogs. Um, I'm a third year medical student. I'm really interested in surgery. Would you mind if I, you know, if you know how to scrub, say, you know, would you mind yeah. if I scrub in? It's very rare for people to, you know, people might say no, but you know, it doesn't matter. You've asked, yeah. um, and they'll remember you because. I can tell you now. I mean, compared to when I was a student, very few students come to my theatre and ask me if they can scrub in. Really. Um, you know, and and I'm pretty good at letting people do stuff, um, and I'm happy to teach people how to put sutures into skin and do all that kind of stuff. So, it's really um, it's really rare for me to have students that want to do that. Mm. Um, I, I mean, at the private because we have medical students at the private. Um, you know, I do operate on a Friday, so I, I sometimes think that most of the students are at the beach. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think if you are keen, those are the things that you could do is just to go and introduce yourself. And, you know, if you have registrars that are doing operating, um, you know, even something like an appendix, um, you know, you can offer to go in and scrub and hold the camera and mm. ask questions and, and learn things. Um, it's really important. And if you're learning your anatomy, you know, reading a textbook is so boring. But if you go to theatre and actually look at the anatomy and, and see how things actually connect to each other and how things are related, it makes it so much easier. Um, yeah. So, look, I loved being a medical student and I think, um, I, I mean, I spent a lot of time at the hospital. We were students. We So at Liverpool we used to actually live in, so we had accommodation. All right. And... In those days, Liverpool was a little bit rough and, um, you know, you just wouldn't really go out. You know, a lot of the patients that ended up in emergency came from the local pub. So it wasn't quite a place to go drinking. Um, And so for entertainment, we used to go to ED because, you know, that was kind of like (laughs) instead of going to the movies, you kind of go, oh, let's go to ED and see what's going on. Um, and in those days, we did get a lot of trauma. I, was, I always joke that those were the days before people learned to shoot straight. So we used to get a few gunshots and things that used to come in because people hadn't quite learned how to shoot things properly. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it was really interesting. And, and I really, I mean, that, and that's what initially led me to think about trauma surgery as a career. Um, but you know, all that kind of stuff—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really. It's, it's interesting, it's fun, and if that's what you are interested in, it, being a student is a great time to go and do that because, you know, there's no expectations. Um, and if you turn up and you're genuinely interested, people will, uh, will notice. And mm. most people like to teach you. And, they'll, they, you know, if you ask questions, they will teach you.
0: Yeah. Well, to our Sydney colleagues, if you're listening to this, please make the most of those opportunities because we're jumping out of our seats over here. Um, all right. So this is a great transition then to what happens after medical school, which we started discussing a bit earlier. Um, so, what we've gathered is that you've throughout your, the years after medical school, you've trained in Australia, Singapore, Scotland,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: eventually finishing your vascular surgical training in 2013. But There's a wealth of stories lied in that journey. So tell us about your journey in your own words. What did you do after medical school?
1: All right. So um, I stayed at Liverpool Hospital and I wanted to be a surgeon. And um, in those days, we just come back to so that the college of surgeons, you know, they try things and then they go back to things. Um, So we had so they just started what they call the basic surgical training scheme, which meant that you'd actually um, have to sit for interviews and things. Mm -hmm. And um, I did that and I got on. And um, you have to do your part two exam. And uh, I got through that uh, the second time around. So uh, hints to people, when you are about to sit your exam, it's usually helpful to study for it. (laughs) Um, I I did study for it, but I also... um, in those days, leave was really tight. So if you wanted, you couldn't have study leave and annual leave. So you had to take your annual leave um, if you wanted to study. So I was, really, I was really annoyed that I couldn't have annual leave. So the four weeks before the exam, which I got off, I went down. My sister lives in Melbourne. So I went and stayed with my sister. And yeah. so The plan was that during the day I'd study, but we'd go out at night and do stuff. And, yeah. and that my, works out well. My study... Time during the day got less and less and less um, until I did my exam. And in those days, they used to actually have an interview. They don't do that anymore. But in those days, Mm -hmm. people and they'd say, you know, how did you go? Did you study? Do you think you should pass? And I have this um, affliction of total honesty. And so they asked me after the exam, they said, oh, so, you know, did you study a lot? And I just kind of went, and I, I could almost hear my brain saying say yes say yes yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden out of my mouth was like oh to be honest i probably could have done more <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and yeah so anyway i got my marks and i'd failed by one question oh. and i always think to myself if i'd actually said to them oh you know i studied really hard yeah. um uh, whether they i would have passed but anyway. As my sister says to me, she says, uh she always said, it was great that you failed because it um it made her believe that uh there was quality to surgeons because she said if you'd passed, I would have been really worried about um yeah. <laughs> about, about the the pass rate. So um so yeah, so the second time around I actually sat down and studied really hard because it was really embarrassing. I was one of the few people at my, if not the only person actually at, at the hospital where I worked, but failed. So that was really that was a little bit humiliating. So, um, so yeah, so I made sure that I passed the second time around.
0: Yep, and family, you can trust them to give it to you straight. That's right. Yeah.
1: Um. Anyway, while I was doing that, I got asked to do an unaccredited year in neurosurgery, mm-hmm. and so. I did, um, so I did a a term, not a year, but I did um, six months of that. And I suddenly discovered that I loved it. And I thought, I love neurosurgery. This is fantastic. Um, And then I did a year of unaccredited general, which was um, vascular in general. And I didn't like either of those. Mm. And I decided that I really wanted to do neurosurgery. So I did it. I got a year back at Liverpool as the unaccredited neurosurgical registrar and then I got onto the neurosurgical training scheme Um, and so that was my first year of traveling overseas I went to New Zealand and I did a year of neurosurgery in New Zealand and I still kind of liked it Um, but one of the things is and this is what I sort of say to people just because you start off in something doesn't mean you really need to keep going if you really don't like it but I found that it was really sad and it really wasn't for me. A lot of the patients that we dealt with had brain tumours and Mm -hmm. traumas. And, um, you know, once people have had a major neurosurgical um, injury, they don't really get back to normal. And, you know, some of the things is, you know, someone who'd have a really terrible head injury and they survive, but they're never the same. And sometimes, you know, You'll see patients, and you know, I remember people go, Oh, he's done so well, and it's kind of like, Oh, really? Mm. You know, he can, kind of,
2: before.
1: yeah, yeah, you know, he can feed himself and he can kind of say a few words, but he was an engineering student at university. Um, mm. you know, his life is never going to be the same again, his family's life is never going to be the same again. So, I used to find that really emotionally draining, um. And then in my second year, I went to a unit um, that was, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but was notoriously difficult. And at that unit, I really had a terrible, I had a really hard time. It was a very dysfunctional unit. Um, And so they just didn't like me. And I'd come from New Zealand, which had really different ideas. And I, you know, I was kind of young and naive and, and one of the things I've learned with time is, you know, there is a time to just keep your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. And I took a while to learn that. And so one of the things is that, you know, sometimes something would like happen, I'd go, oh, but in New Zealand we did this. And so um, they found that really annoying. Okay. And so they just, you know, we just had a few things and then they all just decided that I was terrible. And and then i would try really hard. And anyway, it just ended up being this sort of spiraling. I like to think of it as sort of spiral spiraling death thing. Um, and it was just a terrible year. And I became really unhappy. And as I always say to people, you know, if you love the job, yeah, you hate your consultants, you will still work because you love what you do. If you hate the job but you love your consultants, you'll still keep working because you really mm-hmm. don't let these people down but when you hate the job and you really hate the consultants, it's really hard to stick to it because yeah. there's nothing there that gives you joy. And, um, and so, yeah, so about three quarters of the way through that year. And, you know, there were a couple of things that happened and incidents always, you know, some trigger. Yeah. Um, and so for me, a trigger was when I had a child that died and I suddenly thought, you know, this is not for me. Yeah. And, i quit and i quit surgery i quit and i decided that was it i was done okay. and i walked out and yeah i just basically took time off and didn't know what i was going to do with myself but you know i, I had friends that came to me and they said wow you know you, you, you'd stop smiling did you know that and i didn't mm. and um And so taking that time off was fantastic. You know, I reconnected with family and friends. I joined a gym. Um, I started traveling.
0: I did locums.
1: So in those days, it was a lot easier to get locums. And I ended up doing locum shifts at one of the emergency departments that I worked in uh, before when I was a resident. Yeah. So again, it was kind of being in a familiar place, knowing people. Um, And that was really great. And so I did that for about 18 months. Yeah. One of my old surgical consultants at Liverpool found out that I'd left surgery and rang me and basically uh-huh.
2: said,
1: Be in my office tomorrow, I'll talk to you. <laughs> yeah. um, and then sort of hung up the phone before I could really say anything. Um, and so I went and saw him and we had a chat. And he basically said to me, Look, um, I need people and I need someone to, to cover a couple of girls who are pregnant. Yeah. and want to take leave and I need you to slot into their spots. Um, and he said, you know, give me a year of your life and if you still hurt surgery, I'll let you go. But, you know, give me that year. Yeah. Um, and so I went back and I did, and we'll say so it was an unaccredited year, but I was working in accredited jobs. And so that was good, which meant that I was, you know, the registrar and I got to do a lot of operating. And, and yeah, and that one year back, Um, in general surgery just reminded me that I really did love surgery. Mm -hmm. And um, and so then the next year I did another year of general surgery and then I applied to both general and vascular. And then I got onto both and uh, vascular offered me a set two-year. okay, General offered me a set one year. And I thought, and then the set two-year in vascular was in Singapore. Now, I probably haven't mentioned how much I love shopping and food <laughs> yeah. and therefore yeah. it was a pretty easy decision to yeah. <laughs> to do vascular. And so that's how I got onto vascular training. Um, and I did my first year, so I set two year in Singapore, mm-hmm. which was really interesting. Um, it's just that opportunity to see a different health system um, I think one of the beauties of Australia and, and Medicine Australia is that we're all so diverse. Yeah. Uh, that we all come from really different backgrounds. But sometimes even saying that, for me, you know, coming here as a child, I've only ever known the Australian health system. Um, and to go to, to Singapore where it's a user pay system was really interesting because... Um, you know, as a registrar, I'd run a clinic. And when I booked people in for surgery, after I finished talking to them, I had to give them a piece of paper with the procedures that we're going to do. And then they'd have to go to the accounts office and then the accounts would tell them how much they had to pay for the operation. And we had to write certain things. And, and, you know, as a a vascular surgeon doing a, say an angioplasty where we're going to use Mm -hmm. a balloon, a balloon is relatively cheaper than a stent. Um, And sometimes, you know, if you have a complication of a balloon, you have to use a stent, but a stent's really expensive. And so if the patient has to pay for that, sometimes you'd be like, oh, you know, I might just have to balloon that again because they haven't consented to actually buy a stent if something happens. So it was a really, you know, and if you did use a stent, then you had to go tell the patient that you used something that's going to cost them quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was, you know, it made me feel very lucky that I, I lived in Australia. And, you know, it, um, I had a patient that was in hospital for a really long time because he'd had, he was actually in hospital before I got there. Um, he'd had a ruptured aneurysm and he'd had all, all these complications from a ruptured aneurysm. And it was so sad. You know, he was one of my favorite patients, but his family going yeah. to be bankrupt because of all of his costs. Um, you know, every time he had to go back to theater and every time he had to do anything, um, and there I was coming from my Australian viewpoint and going, Oh, you right, he he needs a vac, let's just get a vac on. And then finding out that you know, a vac change every time he had a change of vac, his family's bill was going up, Mm -hmm. and you know, his daughter was working two two jobs to keep up with the installment payments and stuff, um, and that was really eye-opening because it kind of makes you go wow you know we're so lucky
2: yeah um
1: and you know sometimes you'd have patients that would come in with a ruptured aneurysm and you'd talk to the family and and they'd say you know oh, well how much is all of that going to cost and you'd say well it's probably going to cost about this much and they'd kind of go you know she's had a really good life i don't oh, think she'd want okay. surgery and they wouldn't and they wouldn't have surgery um, yeah. then you know you have um older people that you tell them how much things are going to cost. And they say, oh, no, we won't have treatment because, you know, that money is going to come, you know, get taken away from my children or my grandchildren. Yeah. And so, you know, people made decisions about their health based on finances, which right. we don't tend to do so much in Australia. So in those days, vascular surgery used to have an exchange program with the UK. Mm-hmm. If you go and do one year in the UK, and so I'd already packed up my apartment and I was in Singapore. So I wrote a letter to the vascular board saying, you know, would you please consider sending me to, uh, to the UK? Um, and so they were really kind enough to say yes. And they gave me my first choice of whichever unit I wanted to go to. Right. So uh, it used to be with um, Oxford uh, which was John Radcliffe, Cambridge was Addenbrooke's, or with Edinburgh, which is the Royal Infirmary. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, a little bit embarrassed to admit this, but I kind of had this image of really good-looking Scottish men in kilts, and I chose Edinburgh for that reason. <laughs> yeah. And I really wish someone had made me watch train spotting before I went because yeah. I <laughs> chose Cambridge in retrospect. So um, I... Um, There were really very few good-looking men in kilts in Scotland. Um, But Edinburgh was beautiful. Um, My friend went to Cambridge and I had a couple of uh, non-medical friends in Cambridge and Cambridge was beautiful. Yeah. um, It was also a lot closer to London. So there were times when I was like, I should have gone gone to uh, Cambridge. But Edinburgh was really interesting. Um, It was um, the hospital that I worked in had the uh, thoracobdominal aneurysm um Hmm. the whole of scotland and upper upper england uh, or north of england and so there were some really big aortic things that i got to watch and be an assistant for so that was great because you know um i probably saw more big aortic cases in edinburgh than i've done here where in sydney we tend to do a lot of endovascular stuff okay Um, so that was good, and we had lots of ruptures and lots of big things, and very little endovascular, which for me, um, you know, I sort of saw so much open work, which um, was good for my logbook, I guess, and yeah. experience. Um, it was a really interesting working in the NHS with safe working hours because they were mm-hmm. really strict about working hours, so I it was the cushiest job I've ever done in my life. Um, Singapore was really tough because Singapore they work really hard. So for any of you who are from Singapore, who are planning to go back and work in Singapore as an intern, um, it's really hard work. So in Singapore, you have to round every single day of the week. And when I wasn't on call, but one of my consultants was operating, I used to get called in because the theory was that these were gonna be your patients. So you needed Mm. to be there for the operation. So, you know, the very first Saturday that I got called in, I had this phone call from a colleague and she's like, oh, you know, the professor's operating. And I was like, great, thanks for letting me know. And she's like, no, no, you need to come in. I'm like, but you're on call. And she's like, I know, but you need to come in. I'm like, but I'm not on call. And she's like, but you need to come in. And I'm like, I don't understand that. And she's like, it's Singapore. And I was like, okay um so that was interesting whereas the nhs was so different so the nhs had safe working hours and i still remember there was somebody that needed a toe amputation and we finished work at nine yeah um and so i rang the consultant and i said look you know i think i was, it was probably about eight when i rang him i said look it's eight o'clock they say that we're not going to get him before nine but they can get him in around 11 um i just want to let you know that i'll take him there at 11 and do it i just didn't want to you know call you later you know because there's me being very I don't want to wake you up and whatever and he's like no no you have to go home and I was like no no but if I go home who's going to do that because no no tell them to call me and I was like you're going to come in to do a amputation I don't think so (laughs) I was like this would never happen in Australia um and so um it was really interesting and he made me go home and I couldn't believe it. I was just, I was really embarrassed. Cause I was like, it's just a toe. Like, I don't mind. I can read a book. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, no, no, you have to go home because if you were, if someone had reported him, we would have been, the trust would have been fined. And uh-huh. so, um, so yeah, so they were really strict with the safe working hours. Yeah. You know, so- and I had one day when I walked in to work and I got sent home because I'd exceeded my hours when they'd done the, you know, when they counted uh-huh. the hours, yeah. So I turned up and at 8 and I'll sent home at 8.30.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm loving Sorry. the diversity of experiences, mm. different nations and people you've been working with, um, which have undoubtedly you know, help shape you to be the surgeon you are today. Um, something else you mentioned throughout this journey over here and something that seems to be quite important to you is that things didn't always work out how you wanted them to be. And hence, you've described this need to have a plan B and to be prepared to do something else. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how important it is to you?
1: Look, I think it's really important. And, and, you know, for me, it was that first time of not getting into medicine and then doing something else. Um, And then, you know, getting into neurosurgery and hating it and leaving. Um, And so if I hadn't come back to surgery, I'd actually started looking at emergency medicine because, again, I quite enjoyed that. Yeah. And so I've actually been low coming in an emergency and I started speaking to some of the consultants about getting a job. And, you know, these days it is really competitive to get into surgery. And there is a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, and, you know, all of us, con- you know, senior consultants, we see that for our juniors. And, yeah. and, you know, I love surgery. I love what I do and I want everybody to do what I do. But the reality is, is that, you know, there are going to be a group of students who love surgery, want to do surgery, who may never get onto a surgical training scheme. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to make sure that as you go through that you are looking at all the other opportunities that are available in medicine. Um, You know, there are so many different careers that you don't always get exposure to as a student. Um, that it could be, you know, incredibly interesting. Um, and that's one of the things I always say to students, you really have to go into hospital and you have to look at these opportunities to go to different areas and, you know, find out what a nuclear physician does and go to the, spend time with the anaesthetist and, you know, go down to pathology and see what the pathologists do um, and the radiologists and all that kind of stuff, because there are, there's lots of things that you could do. And then if you do decide that you want to be a surgeon, then again, like for me, I mean, don't sort of perhaps think, well, I'm going to do urology and that's it, you know, urology or bust. Because if you don't get onto urology or plastics or ENT, then, you know, is there another surgical specialty that you could be happy in? So don't then, um, and this is one of the things that the college is looking at is don't do, you know, five years of unaccredited urology and then you don't get on. And then you're left with nothing. Yeah. Um, we know from statistics within the college that by your, if once you, have you know, a lot of the subspecialties now have a three, um, a three time application. Um, so you can apply it three times and then you can't apply anymore. Yeah. But we already know if someone's applied three times and haven't got in that their chance of getting in on their fourth attempt is less than 5%. Mm. You
2: know?
1: And so it's really important for people to understand that. Um, and and the fact that you don't get into, you know, into a surgical training scheme, um, sometimes, you know, you, you just can't, um, you can't sort of take it personally, I suppose is the way I was going to say is it. because, There are so many exceptional people out there. I get to meet um, so many great junior doctors when I teach Chris, which is one of the prerequisite courses. Mm -hmm. Um, And I get to meet all these people. And they'll they'll all be fantastic surgeons. Um, And so it's really difficult because there is only a finite number of surgeons that Australia actually needs. One of the big areas of need, though, is the country. And so that's one of the areas that the college is looking at is about making sure we're training surgeons for the country. And part of that involves also choosing people from the country because, you know, we all tend to want it. To, uh, well, a lot of us end up practicing in areas where we grew up. And so you're far more likely to go to the country as a surgeon if you grew up in the country.
2: Mm.
1: And so that's one of the big pushes that the college is looking at. And that's not to say that, you know, if you grew up, if you grew up in the middle of Melbourne that, you know, you're not going to get into a surgical training scheme, but it just means that you do have to think about the fact that it is really competitive. Make sure it's what you really want to do. Make sure that, you know, you do have a few options. Um, And, and think about that. And and also remember that just like people come to Australia to train, you can also go overseas to train. One of them, I met this surgeon, at a conference and she actually trained um in Sydney and she was actually a um she finished a year after I did um and she actually looked at all the training and she was really uh determined to become a surgeon and she actually went to the U.S. and got a job there because she, she realized that by going to the U.S. and working as a surgical intern straight away that she'd be a consultant in four to five years and she's now um director of surgery at one of the big universities university academic institutions in the us i mean i'm not saying that you should all leave australia but you know there are sort of different ways to to achieve your goals yeah Um, but you know i mean i guess at the end of the day though you've got to do what you love um you know and if you truly truly love it then you should definitely go for it
0: yeah no, but you're talking about something important that we almost seem to not consider and just sweep under the rug, that prospect of failure and what to do when it happens. Um, so openly discussing that, you know, it, it's quite likely that some people won't get onto the program even though they try, but then that we need to have this openness of, okay, I can find something else to do. My skills will be valued somewhere else.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, you know, there's lots of areas where, you um, you know, you think about where you could be of value um, and, you know, things like general practice and being a procedural general practitioner. You know, there's, there's anesthetics if you enjoy mm. that theater time. Um, so there's lots of things that you can do that you can think about. But yeah. don't, um, but, you know, one of the things is if you don't get in. It's, it's, and it's really important also to think about the fact that when you finish, when you start doing surgical training, to choose an area where you'll get a job at the end of it.
2: Yeah. You know, there's
1: nothing worse than finishing all your surgical training and then not being able to get a job. And, yeah. and that's in my role as Chair of Younger Fellows. Um, I know that there are a lot of um, young surgeons that currently don't have public appointments. Right. that's really, that's a really difficult situation. And it's not so much because there isn't that many jobs around. There are jobs. It's just not in the place where they want to be.
0: Yeah, I was about to ask you actually about what your role as the Chair of Younger Fellows entails. So um, finding out that you're helping those people who are qualified but just unemployed um, is quite reassuring. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that um, role entails for you?
1: So younger fellows are surgeons in their first 10 years of graduating or from attaining their fellowship exam. So it's interesting because in the subspecialties, you tend to finish your training and be able to go on to be a consultant almost straight away. So, you know, I didn't go overseas to do a fellowship. I finished in 2012. I started in private practice in 2013 some people do go overseas on a fellowship and certainly I probably would have if I hadn't been pregnant at the time. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, but the fellowship overseas, I think is more of a fun sort of finishing year and going to do something that you may not get to always do in Australia, but with general surgery, when you finish general surgery, most people have to do some kind of subspecialty colorectal upper GI. Yeah. So you're adding two or three years again on a training scheme. Plus then if you mm-hmm. want to go overseas and do a fellowship, so, um, so I sort of have this kind of group of younger fellows who are still doing postgraduate or post fellowship training, plus also subspecialty, um, people who are already out in the workforce. Yeah, um, yeah. and what we find though, is that the more subspecialized you are, sometimes the harder it is to get a job.
0: Yeah, so, you know, cool.
1: it's, it's like how many hepatobiliary surgeons does, you know, Melbourne need, um, So you've got to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, as you're going through training of looking at where the opportunities are going to be for employment and, uh, you know, at the moment, if you look at somewhere like, say, sort of the Port Macquarie area, for instance, they're absolutely desperate for ENT surgeons. Um, And yet, you know, you'll, you know, I will hear from, you know, junior ENT consultants who will say, oh, there's no jobs and I'm like, well, actually, there are jobs. Yeah. You just have to move to the country. Um, but, again, it's also hard because if you get on and, you know, it's taken you a while to get on and you've gotten married and you've got children, the mm-hmm. children are at school, it's your wife's got a job or your husband's got a job, it's really hard then to uproot the entire family and move. Yeah. Um, so it's a really complex issue of trying to marry where the vacancies are with, you know, where people want to work. And yeah. then, you know, you look at things like vascular, which is really um, especially the way we train nowadays, a lot of endovascular stuff, and we all have hybrid suites. But, you know, if you go to certain areas, you know, your access to hybrid suites probably limited and mm-hmm. you're looking at more open surgery. So if you don't really feel very comfortable doing a lot of big open surgery, you might not want to take that job in the country because you'll feel unsupported and you certainly don't want to be there as the sole surgeon. Yeah. So there's lots, of, there's lots of issues and lots of things to think about.
0: Yeah, no, and if you were to understand um, what the younger fellows are about, which is something that probably many of us wouldn't have been aware of until today, um, the, perhaps the last thing that we have time to explore might be your other role with RAC, so being Deputy Chair of Women in Surgery Committee. Um, So we've recently heard about the phasing out of the gendered titles, um, which is such a great initiative that even as students, we're wondering about why someone called Mr and another doctor. Um, But what else do you think we should be doing um, about the issues facing women in surgery?
1: You know, this is something um, that's really dear to my heart. So, um, you know, I'm glad that, I hope all the students do support the change in titles um, because it really is in new south wales we're all doctors and yep. you know the world is still working and and you know the sky hasn't fallen um, <laughs> so it can happen um, i think what i really want is for there to be you know equal opportunity and i really want there to be more female surgeons, I guess, you know, we only have 13% of um, fellows are female. Um, And one of the things that really distresses me in some ways is that we've had, you know, gender equality in medical schools for over 20 years. And yet we still do not have 50% of applicants being female. So it is in these days as medical students or junior doctors that we are losing a whole lot of women to other specialties. And, um, you know, a lot of people talk about um, parenting and and having children as being a major issue. Um, And uh, that's one of the things that we're looking at, you know, increasing flexible training and surgery. But, you know, what I'd say to every female student who's listening to this is, you know, training is hard in all specialties. Yeah. And, you know, surgery, if you want to do surgery, don't give it up thinking that it's going to be hard to be a parent because it'll be hard to be a parent no matter what you choose. Um, and, uh, you know, but if you love surgery, then you will make it work. And we're certainly looking at things, um, you know, even things like breastfeeding breaks when you're working as a registrar, um, trying to really make people realize that that you know surgery is for females as well and it's so fantastic you know they you know you know when you have a theater that you know where you my registrar's female Monica my registrar's female and one, you know intern's female it's, it's it's great i really i love that and i'm not saying this i don't want to sound anti-men because you know yeah. we need male surgeons too but i just want there to be that that um idea that everybody kind of equally thinks about it and that people aren't giving up on surgery because of things that they perceive to be there. And I think one of the biggest hurdles that we also have is that uh, a lot of the generational change, we have a lot of senior um, men in in surgery who Mm. I think unknowingly put females off surgery. Mm. Um, You know, if you say you want to be a surgeon, you know, people will say, Oh, are you going to, have children almost as though, well, if you say you're going to be a surgeon, well, you can't, no, you
0: can't do the two or something. You
1: can't do the, and you know, no one ever says if a man, if a male medical student says, I'm going to be a surgeon, I mean, how often do they go, Oh, are you planning to have children? You know, because there's this assumption that it's not going to make a difference to their lives. And, you know, I would say that, you know, whether you're male or female, having a child is still going to be an a, a, an obstacle in your life, um, mm-hmm. a, you know, a fun obstacle, but it, <laughs> um you know, everyone's, you have to sort of kind of think about the fact that there's lots of people out there that have kids. You know, my current registrar has two children. Um, you know, I, I've got a child. Um, and I'm really lucky, I think, being a surgeon. You know, one of the things that, um, one of the good things about surgery is that, you know, you do tend to be remunerated quite well. Yeah. And that's one of the main reasons that, you know, I work part-time. And I probably still earn more than the average, well, definitely I earn more than the average man would working full-time. Wow. Um, and yeah. so that's a really important, it gives me the freedom to do a lot of things. Okay. Um, so that's one of the things that you, you have to consider as well is that um, it gives you a lot more opportunities to to make life choices, I think. So yeah. I would certainly encourage um, all the girls who are listening to this to really seriously consider surgery um, as a career.
0: Yeah, I love that empowering message. And if I might even add um, to the men listening to this um, podcast, it would be around being allies to help with this vision. It's I feel insufficient if, you've, if one focuses the message on only the females, but the men keep doing what they do. So it's important for us um, you know, to have that same vision.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, it's also important to acknowledge though that for men it can be a really um and know yeah, men want to be supportive. And and I'm sure that for everybody listening to it, they're probably sitting there thinking, of course, you know, I want all my, you know, my female friends to succeed and things. But you know, the reality, and this is sort of that whole idea of privilege, the reality mm-hmm. though is that to give other people privilege, you have to sort of take away some of your own privilege and give it, it's a bit like you know let's take orthopedics for instance you know yeah. orthopedics had four percent of female consultants which means that you know 96 percent of male um consultants and that's great I can do maths. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um but you know they've had the the owls so owls are the orthopedic women's link and they've been putting so much work into encouraging women to do orthopedics um and it's a, it's been amazing they have webinars they do all kinds of Things And I've had a few junior doctors, male doctors who have come and spoken to me and they've said, oh, you know, it's really unfair that they're putting so much, um, you know, that being a woman now, you're almost guaranteed to get onto orthopedics. And I was like, mm, I don't think so. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you know, the last lot, you know, something like 15% or something got on. And I said, yeah, but that's that's not yeah. <laughs> 50%, it's 15 and, but, you know, compared to 4%, you know, if you go from four to 15 means that, you know, 11% of men missed out. So all of a yeah. sudden they're now going, yeah, but it's much less, much less likely for me to get in, you know? So the, the thing is that you have to be a lot more exceptional now to get in, or you have to be, you know, it's a sort of an equal playing field. And I think that's a really interesting concept to kind of get your head around that, by making you know by pushing for equality someone is going to have to miss out and someone who may have been uh you know for someone for whom the system may have been a little bit more biased towards yeah to now accept that that bias may not be there
0: yeah we are um inevitably fighting against something systemic and that has been going on for years um so i feel there is this need to redress some of that balance first before then looking again at the you know, equal access to everyone. Um, and,
1: and you know, it. it's, and it's not just women. It's, it's all kinds mm-hmm. of things, you know. If you look at, you know, Aboriginal intake of students, you know, college has got a really strong um, advocacy in this area as well. Um, and even to look at, you know, people of colour and diversity, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff, because at the end of the day, you know, we as surgeons, we need to reflect our community. And people feel comfortable being able to choose and having that choice of going to see somebody who you can feel comfortable with. And I think we've all done that, you know, we all go to a hairdresser that we like or a hairdresser that's done something for us. It doesn't mean that that person is a terrible hairdresser if we just decide never to go back to them. (laughs) It means that we've just chosen somebody else who gels with us. And that's the same thing that you kind of want for your patients. You know, if someone's going to have surgery, you want them to have that opportunity to maybe go, you know what, I think I would rather see a woman for this, or I'd rather see a male, or you know what, I'd rather see a a Chinese surgeon because that way I can speak to them in their language. Um, You know, there's lots of things that, that we kind of need to think about from a patient's point of view as well.
0: Yeah, and for that reason, I think we would all like to thank you and all the people working in those positions. So using your power to try and enact change in those departments. So thanks a lot for all your work, Peggy. Um, now, I think we we have come very quickly to the end of our conversation, um, especially aware of your, some of your other commitments. So um, from our behalf, I'd really like to thank you for your time and contribution today. And we'd like to on behalf of the whole team, wish you good luck in your own endeavours.
1: Thank you so much. It's been such a great opportunity to have a chat.
0: Yeah, it was a really good time. So thank you, Peggy. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'd love to hear what you think. So leave us your comments, questions and thoughts on our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages at The Time Out Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Spotify and Apple Music to receive your regular dose of the timeout. This episode was brought to you by Ganesht, Aidan, Chloe, and Nareen, and we'll see you next time.